This evening, congregation, you'll notice in the order of worship that we have two different Bible passages referenced. One from Exodus 34, which we'll look at, especially underneath our first point of the sermon this evening. So we'll delay momentarily reading from that passage of Scripture. So we'll turn to the section from John 1, verse 14 through 18. And you can find that in your pew Bible on page 1220, 1220. So we read from the inspired Word of God, the Gospel according to John, John chapter 1, from verses 14 through 18. There we read as follows, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me. For He was before Me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Thus far, for now, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by way of clarification and also introduction, uh, we note that we are taking a, a break from our series of sermons through the Belgian Confession and also through the book of Micah. We do so in connection with the commemoration of the anniversary uh, of the Protestant Reformation. Perhaps the most singular event of that Protestant Reformation, uh, that is the action of Martin Luther as he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Now, the Reformation had been picking up steam, you might say, even before that most notable event, but you might say that that was really the event that moved the Protestant Reformation to influence the entirety of the European context. But why was there a Reformation? You could study this from various angles. You could look at a, uh, an economic perspective. You could look at a literary perspective, an educational perspective. But we would simply say this. The Reformation came about because there was a need for a Reformation. As we implied this morning and stated, uh, the word Reformation uh, demands an understanding of deformation. And one of the things that had happened throughout the Middle Ages was that individuals who were connected to the Christian church, that time underneath the oppressive tyranny of the Pope of Rome, they had lost an understanding of what grace was. They had lost an understanding of what grace was. And and this was evident in their insistence, at, at times even to physical harm, and at times to financial ruin, their insistence of following all types of works to try to gain peace for their souls. What you had in the Middle Ages leading up to the Protestant Reformation is you had persons who were sincere in their religious concerns and they were sincerely concerned about how they could be reconciled to God. And the Roman Catholic Church told them, work and work some more. And then work even a little bit more and perhaps at some point after all of your works have been exhaustively done, 
Maybe then you'll have a measure of peace. And so, uh, the peasants, the common persons, all throughout the European continent, they spent all that they had, and they gave all that they had, and they did all that they could. They never found peace for their souls because they lost an understanding of what grace was. And we might say, how can you lose a sense of what grace is? But I would suggest to you that it's not so difficult for a Christian or for a Christian church to slowly and in subtle ways to lose an understanding and an appreciation for grace. I've heard individuals who belong to conservative Reformed church say that they deserved a bit of grace. I hope you pick up the irony of that statement. The moment we think that we deserve grace, we reveal that we do not totally understand what grace is. I've also listened to people as they emphasize in their conversations, even theological conversations, and all of the emphasis is put upon works. Works of morality. Works of conservatism, works of traditionalism. And the idea is if only we do this right, and if only we do that right, and only if we do these other things as we've always done them, then we will have peace with God. Then we'll be well off. Now all of those things can be well-intentioned. But if those things, a type of legalistic moralism, a type of conservative traditionalism, if those things eclipse the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and of truth, then we had better be forewarned that we are in danger of losing an understanding of what grace is. And so tonight, as we commemorate the Reformation, we want to do so by looking at another one of the solas. You will perhaps remember from this morning or from your other studies throughout your lifetime, there were five solas, or alones, so to speak, these theological truths that the Reformers insisted upon as they reformed the church. Over the recent weeks leading up to today, we've looked at scriptural truths concerning the Bible itself. And so there was this sola of Scripture alone. That is, the Word of God as we find it in the inspired and infallible and inerrant 66 canonical books. It alone is authoritative for our doctrine and our life. And so we build our personal lives and we build our congregational life upon the Word of God. This morning we had the opportunity to look uh, at the theological truth of Christ alone. Uh, That in all aspects of our salvation, it is the work of the one and only perfect Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that we find salvation and that we find liberation from the tyranny of the devil. Tonight we look at grace alone. We want to do so with three points. First of all, the description of grace. Secondly, the need for grace. And then thirdly, the effect of grace. So we have this theme, by grace alone, the description, the need, and the effect of grace. And in connection with the first point, the description of grace, I would cross-reference you and your Bibles to Exodus 34, beginning at verse 5, reading through verse 9 for the moment. A very well-known passage, most likely. The encounter uh, here. Uh, that Moses has with the Lord God Almighty. 
And you'll notice as Moses ascends to uh, the top of Mount Sinai and presents himself there as a representative of the covenant people of Israel, uh, he sees something of the Lord God. Verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And this is an act of self-revelation whereby the Lord God is showing Moses and the covenantal people and also you and I who He is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And notice it continues, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now we just pause there and we, first of all, state there is, of course, a necessary understanding of something of the fullness of the attributes of God. And we have to have a balanced theological view of who God is. A paying respect to the fullness of God's self-revelation. And there must be in the church and the reformers, whether 500 years ago, whether 100 years ago, or whether yesterday, anybody who's working for reform, biblical reform in the church, begins by insistence upon we have a proper theological understanding of who God is. And that includes the attributes of His holiness and of His righteousness. But notice the attributes that the Lord God Himself makes primary in His self-revelation to Moses. Notice the first words that the Lord God says to Moses there in the glory of that theophany at Mount Sinai. You have it there also again in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Congregation, young and old, and anyone who hears these words, never forget that the God of heaven and earth is a God who is merciful and gracious. And by the very structure of the words that the Lord speaks, the primacy is given. God would have Moses know and God would have us know that He is a God of mercy and of grace. And this attribute, this characteristic, this reality about God Himself of His grace is that He has an attitude, a heart attitude of unmerited favor towards persons. At its very basic essence, that's what grace is. Unmerited favor. That's why we said the statement, I deserve a little bit of grace, is an awful statement. Because grace by its very essential definition is unmerited. An unmerited favor. God basically says to Moses and to the covenant people and to every single Christian, I have a favorable attitude towards you even though you do not deserve such a favorable attitude. And that is what grace is. And this must be our view of God. That God in His heart, and I recognize that we speak anthropomorphically, but we speak biblically. The Bible often refers to the heart of God. The heart of God towards you and towards myself as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is one of compassion and of pity 
and of favor. Now it's not just an attribute of God, it flows out into an action of God. It's not as if God just says to Moses and to the covenant people of Israel and and to you and to me, well, I have this attitude of favor towards you, but God also acts. So grace is an attitude of God, but also action of God. Redemptive action of God. Saving action of God. And now here again, you have all of the attributes, all of the characteristics uh, that God is a sovereign God. He's a God of all power. He's a God of all wisdom. But we don't want us to have any type of impression that God is just sitting aloof, so to speak, uh, in the recesses of eternity, looking upon human history and saying, oh, I have this attitude of pity towards those poor human individuals. He has that attitude of compassion towards His elect people that moves Him then to act. And so you'll notice uh, what Moses then says in Exodus 34, uh, verse 9. Then Moses said to the Lord God, if now I have found grace, notice there that is that word, if I now have found this attitude of favor, if it is true, which of course it is, if it is true, Lord, that you have this attitude of favor, of undeserved favor towards myself and towards these people that you have redeemed, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Even though we are a stiff-necked people. And that phrase, stiff-necked people, that's not a complimentary term. Rather, it's a term that expresses the reality of our fallen nature and of our sinful nature. And Moses here is not saying that Pharaoh was stiff-necked. Pharaoh was stiff-necked. He's at this point in the bottom of the Red Sea. The stiff-necked is referring to the people of God. And you and I, we are stiff-necked. We are a stubborn people. I mean, we don't like to be confronted with that reality. Uh, just recently, I, I think just recently, uh, one of our neighbors uh, obtained some sheep. Maybe I just recently noticed that they've long had sheep. Either way, uh, I've noticed these sheep. And sometimes we have kind of fairy tale pictures of sheep. Oh, they're, they're nice and they're cute. Uh, maybe we have little pictures of lambs and child's books and we think, oh, how nice. A few things about sheep. Uh, they're ignorant. They're extremely ignorant. They just kind of wander wherever they want to wander. They're not nearly as wise as cattle who know when to come home for milking time. Sheep will just wander out in no man's land. And they're absolutely defenseless. And they're dirty. And they stink. So when we are referred to as sheep, don't get this impression of some little stuffed animal all cute and soft and cuddly. Think rather of a completely ignorant, yet stubborn, stinky animal with absolutely no defenses. Moses says, come among us, a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin. You see, that's the action of grace. And as we transition into our second point of the need for grace, I I just want to pause and ask a word for self-reflection. 
At the end of the sermon, our song of dedication is going to be Amazing Grace. Are you, am I, are we amazed by grace? Are we amazed that God would have an attitude of unmerited favor towards us? Are we amazed that He would come among us and dwell with us and fellowship with us? Are we amazed that He would forgive us? Are we amazed that He would adopt us as sons and daughters? Are we still amazed or have we ever been amazed that He so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son for us? Understanding the attitude of God and the action of God is part of the description of grace. What a wonder that our God is a God of grace. Because we have a a desperate need for grace. And that, as we alluded to, is our second point. And we look at this at, so to speak, two levels. There is a need of God's grace because we are creatures, but there is also a need of God's grace because we are sinners. First of all, then, God's grace is necessary to a certain degree because we are creatures. Creatures of the dust. Now, we are wonderfully made. That the psalmist knew right well, and he describes that reality in Psalm 139. And so the biblical narrative as we find it in Genesis 1 and 2 is absolutely authoritative and reliable. We have the beginnings of our existence underneath the creative hands of God as He formed dust out of the ground. So let us never forget, from dust we have come, and to dust we will return. We are creatures of the dust. But we are unique creatures of the dust because God also, in addition to the formation of our bodies, imparted unto each and every one of us a soul. A soul that sets us apart from every other animal in the realm of creation. So even though the popular culture is more and more minimizing the distinctiveness of the human being, let us remember, although we are creatures of the dust, we are unique creatures of the dust because we are also given the soul. And therefore we are image bearers of God. Image bearers of God in that we reflect Him to a certain extent in who we are and in the relationships that we establish. Having said all of that, we are still creatures. And even though we are uh, the most elevated creature, there is still an infinite gulf between us and the Creator. No matter what we might accomplish. And we need to be continually reminded of this also because of the tendency of the idolatry of self. No matter what we can accomplish, we will never by ourselves be able to accomplish the passing of this infinite gulf between the Creator, God, and the creature, human beings. And so what we mean to say by this is when God comes and establishes a relationship with Adam and Eve, even before the fall, there is an element of coming down. So think of how the narrative reads. Adam and Eve, even before the fall, is not that they go up into heaven and walk with God, that God comes down in this condescending act of grace to establish and to maintain this relationship of fellowship that is the very essence of life itself. Now that need for grace is magnified greatly 
why the rebellious action of sin of Adam and of Eve and all of humanity and Adam and Eve, all of humanity that includes yourself and myself. And that, of course, is where the emphasis in the Scripture is placed, that you and I need grace because we are sinners. Now, very quickly, because time got away from me uh, this morning, uh, I acknowledge that to my catechism students. The first point was about as long as the second and the third point together. We're going to try to avoid that error, but very quickly we have to say, and, and this is where the Reformers were spot on, what you believe about God will determine what you believe about man or humanity. And what you believe about God determines what you believe about humanity, including yourself, and that will determine what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it begins with our theology. And from our theology, there is our anthropology. And from our anthropology, there is then our understanding of Christology. So what you believe about God, and you see this in Exodus 34. Moses is overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And then he reflects upon who he himself is. Part of this stiff-necked, rebellious people. Hey, he's not exaggerating here. This is not some type of self-deprecation. You know, putting himself down, hoping the Lord will say, well, Moses, you're not really that bad. You're not a stiff-necked person. Why, you're my leader. You're my man. Well, the Lord, he says, recognizes the reality of Moses' confession. But Moses, knowing that God is a God of grace and of mercy, and knowing that He is a stiff-necked people, then comes to understand the power of redemption. Lord, come among us with Your actions of grace and with Your actions of mercy. And you'll notice that what he requests there in Exodus 34, verse 10, is pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as Your inheritance. So it is especially the reality of our sin and of our iniquity that amplifies the need for grace. And I would submit to you that this is often what happens in churches, generally speaking. Because God is forgotten as far as His attributes go, including His attributes of mercy and grace, the whole view of the church and especially the pulpit gets skewed, and then it becomes simply a little bit of moralistic tips for you to get through the week in a better way. A few suggestions for how you can bolster up your relationships on a horizontal level. And you find essentially nothing of that in Exodus 34. Moses comes to the Lord, for the Lord summons, and the Lord says to Moses, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious, forgiving sin. Moses says, well, we are a stiff-necked people. We are sinners. We are those who have transgressed. Therefore, come among us and pardon our iniquity and take us as your inheritance. Or as we read this morning in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And part of the answer to the question is, do we still find the amazingness in grace as whether or not we are still or ever have been confronted in a powerful and in a real way with our own depravity? 
our own depravity. You see, those who biblically rightly understand their own depravity are those who find grace so amazing. And perhaps upon the pain of repetition, I often think of two men who went to pray, whom Jesus spoke about. You could say among that Pharisee and among that publican, one man was amazed by God's grace. And it wasn't the man who we would think it would be. It wasn't the Pharisee who knew all of his theology or so he thought. It was rather the poor penitential publican who knew a basic theology. God is God, and that there is mercy and grace with God that includes the forgiveness of sins for stiff-necked sinners. So he didn't worry about lifting up his eyes under the heavens. He didn't worry about listing all of his credentials. He just simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I ask you, as I ask myself, have you seen your own need of grace? given the reality of your own depravity? Now it's one thing in a catechism class or maybe in a profession of faith class or in some type of Bible study to know the right answers about original sin, total depravity, guilt and corruption. And maybe even to you know, give the correct definitions of such concepts. Have we, do we cry out, God, be merciful to us, the sinner? Well, if we've been brought to that point, then we understand our need of grace. And then we understand why grace is so amazing, in part because of its effect, because of the impact that grace has. And we consider that in our third point, and just simply two aspects of the effect or the impact of grace that we consider tonight. Grace is so amazing because it turns the soul to God. And grace is so amazing because it produces a praise to God. Grace turns the soul. Grace transforms the person. Grace converts the individual. Grace is not just simply, again remember, not just simply the attitude of God. It is that. But given the attitude of God, grace is the action of God. Grace is the merciful action, or we might say the intervention of God within the life of the soul. It begins, of course, in the eternal decrees of election, but then becomes a reality in the manifestation of time with that wonderful work of regeneration that is described by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3. Unless a man be born again, unless a man experience that powerful effect of grace upon the transformation of the soul, He cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's a dead man walking. And he will continue down the path of that death until grace breaks in and powerfully transforms a person in the inner recess of their being in that spiritual entity that the Bible and so we also call the soul. The effect of grace is nothing other than the passing from spiritual death to the passing of spiritual life. The new birth. The being born from above. And God accomplishes this work with the involvement, you might say, or through the means of the Word of God. As you can find mentioned by 
the Apostle Peter. This Word becomes a living power within the elect as they hear the Gospel preached in all of its foolishness, but in all of its truth. But then grace continues to have an impact as it brings about the maturity of the exercise of faith. Don't think for a moment that faith is something that we stir up in and of ourselves by our own will or by our own dedication. It's not as if we just sit, so to speak, in our theological chairs and go, well, now I'm going to exercise faith. And we muster up within ourselves. Obviously, faith is something that we exercise, but only as the grace of God, His merciful attitude and action continue to work within our hearts. That the Holy Spirit, in a spiritual manner, takes up residency within the soul of the Christian and produces this exercise of faith along with its twin grace of repentance. I cannot accomplish repentance in my own heart nor in your heart. Uh, The elders cannot bring about repentance in a person's heart. Parents can't bring about repentance in a child's heart. Absolutely, we bring the Word of God to bear upon a person, but it's only the grace of God that brings about the fruit of genuine repentance and faith. And this also is why grace is so amazing. Grace is able to turn that which is spiritually dead into that which is spiritually alive. Grace is able to turn us. That's why we sang from Psalm 80, We shall be saved when Your face shines once more. This is not just antiquated language from a former day. This is the truth of the Word of God. When God's face of grace and of favor shines upon us, within our heart, through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as described in John 1. We all have received grace upon grace when God shines His face of favor. Then we are turned and then we are saved. Then we are redeemed. Then we are forgiven uh, through the forgiveness of sins that is accomplished only by the grace of God. And, And that must produce praise. Praise not to ourselves. You know, a proud Calvinist is really an ultimate oxymoron. Maybe, and I tend to agree with you, maybe you don't like the term Calvinist. You don't want to exalt any man, so you say a reformer. A proud reformer is really the greatest oxymoron. The Reformed church ought to be known for our humility and for understanding grace to be grace. But then we also need to have a word of caution against this idea kind of that grace is somehow limited. Now we certainly understand the particular nature of grace given only to the elect in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But when grace is described in the Gospel according to John and in chapter 1, as it comes, you'll notice grace comes, not through Moses, but grace and truth, verse 17, came through Jesus Christ. And of course, there's also a spiritual truth. You will never find grace, you will never receive grace apart from Jesus Christ. But notice, of His fullness, verse 16, we have all received, and grace... Or grace. 
Because Jesus Christ, if you look back at verse 14, as He came in the flesh and dwelt among us, and as we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten the Father, He came with a fullness, an overflowing superabundance of grace. And words fail to describe the infinite depth of God's grace towards His people. But think of it this way, there will never be a bottom or an end to the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ for those who sincerely believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. You know, the text there says grace for grace, but the concept is really grace upon grace, stacked and layered to an infinite degree. This is not an original thought with me. My former pastor and seminary professor, Dr. Joel Beakey, described it to us this way once in class. You have to remember that in seminary we were perhaps 30 minutes away from Lake Michigan, one of the Great Lakes. I personally think probably the greatest of the Great Lakes, but that's open to debate. The waves come day after day, year after year. Not for some type of evolutionary dream of billions of years, but for thousands of years. Waves have come. And they will continue to come until the end of time. You can stand there all afternoon if you want. And of course, Lake Michigan is not the only place you can do this. You could go out to the oceans and wave after wave comes. That's the idea of God's grace. Wave after wave of grace. Grace for today. Grace for yesterday. Grace for tomorrow. Grace for the sins that we fall into. But we don't live in them because God's grace comes again and again and again. Grace when we're young, grace when we're teenagers, grace uh, as we begin our adult lives, grace when we find ourselves in the pressures of the midlife responsibilities, grace also as we experience the unique challenges and difficulties to the elderly years of life. Grace for us as covenantal children from the moment we were conceived and born and presented for baptism. And grace upon grace as we heard Day after day and week after week, the explanation of the Christian Gospel from our godly parents, grandparents, for some of us even great-grandparents. As ministers came and preached sermon after sermon after sermon, grace upon grace came our way and we saw the sacraments. Time after time after time, the waters of baptism were before our eyes and the bread and the wine were displayed before our senses. Grace upon grace, year after year after year. What an amazing testimony to the favorable attitude of our God towards us. That in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is grace upon grace. Thanks be to God for all of His mercy and for all of His grace. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at Your goodness, especially as it is manifested and shown towards us in Your mercy and in Your grace for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And our simple prayer tonight is that none of Your people may ever doubt the sufficiency of Your grace, even as they experience uh, the trials of this life, uh, the guilt and the shame that comes from 
the sins that we have committed. And it is also our earnest prayer that as we have spoken about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that sinners might be awakened to see their need for that grace. And that even as grace works within their hearts, there might be the genuine cries of faith and of repentance, and that souls might be saved to testify to Your greatness. Finally, we pray, Lord, that as a congregation, we might never lose the sense of amazement at Your grace, for which we praise You both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.